Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 as we finish up looking at this last letter of Peter and our title, Beware, You Have Been Warned. As we have progressed through this little three-chapter book, I think the title has become very apparent of something that we need to uh, be cognizant of in our lives every day, especially with the current climate of our community, our country, and the world. And I think today really sums it up quite well. You know, this book began with beloved and ends with beloved. Even four times in chapter 3, he speaks on the beloved, that which the Lord loves and the one that the apostle Peter loved. And I think back to that theme verse we've had for this series from chapter 3, verse 17. Beloved, seeing that you know these things beforehand, beware. Now, growing up, I heard these words, behave. Wasn't a paragraph. It wasn't, now I want to explain something to you uh, with three points and with an illustration And uh, you need to understand the ramifications. No, it was behave. And sometimes you couldn't even hear it. You just, but you were a very good lip reader as a young child when mama or dad would look over and say, y'all know what I'm saying? Does that bring back any memories? Listen, throughout life, I remember being told by my parents to behave. And most of the time, because we were all boys, it was not once we got there. It was on the ride. It was in the car. It was on Saturday night before we got up on Sunday morning to go to church. It was before we went to a family gathering. Now listen, your cousins are crazy. Behave. You know, now, you know, aunt so-and-so, she gets real real nervous about things, so just behave. Just behave. Well, I was told that by my parents. I can remember being a youth pastor eons ago, and we sang Shout to the Lord. We think of that as a contemporary song. I remember when it come out, and I was still a youth pastor. And I, we would take our youth, and we would go, to Gatlinburg and we would go to the Smoky Mountain Youth Winter Retreat or we'd go to Super Wow or we would have some kind of retreat and I would always tell them, behave, behave. There's one rule in three parts. Don't embarrass God, don't embarrass me, don't embarrass yourself. Behave. Told my teams that as I coached, whether it was baseball or football or basketball or golf or whatever, we would go to a tournament and sometimes if we went uh, overnight to a state tournament or something like that, I said, now listen, we can't watch you every minute, but you do not want want them to have to come get me. 
And I would see a lot of times we would be staying in a hotel and there would be a bunch of youth and I don't know, they would just got them out of prison or out of a zoo or something and they're out doing Lord knows what, shooting off M80s or TNT or something and setting off fire extinguishers or fire alarms and I always said, see them? You see that? You see how cool that is? That's not what you want to do. It would not be good. Behave. I can remember telling my own children, hey, now people are watching. And for me and for you going forward, the Bible says that, that you, you know a person by how they act. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say and how you do, you can't say, oh, I didn't mean it. You know, politicians love to say, well, I didn't mean that 20 years ago. Instead of, see, it's remorse, they're sorry they got caught. It's not repentance, sorry they ever said it. And so the best way to deal with it, beloved, seeing that you know these things, you know what God's word says, you know that danger is coming, you know there's going to be false prophets, false teachers, false doctrine, false friends, false relationships, you know this. Beware. And behave. That's the title of this last message today. Beware and behave. He starts in verse 11, and we'll read verse 10 in a moment. But in verse 11, he said, Therefore, see, since all these things will be dissolved, all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, as we would grow older, my parents or teachers or whoever in our RAs or, uh, you know, girls in the GAs or in ACT teens or whatever, they would teach us now, how should you act? It wasn't just do this, don't do that. It was what do you think? How do you think you should behave? It, it began to uh, be taught into our psyche and into our being by us being responsible to give the right answer and then to follow up. It was to live that, that motto as a royal ambassador. The Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ. As a royal ambassador, I will do my best to become a well-informed, responsible follower of Christ. And that's who we are to be. And so today, listen, knowing what's going on in our lives, knowing what's going on in the world, knowing what God's word says, we must beware and we must behave. I want you to look with me at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Let's pray. Father, I just feel compelled to stop for a moment and seek your face. All that we are, all that we have, as we have sung today, may our heart song, may the meditation 
of our heart, the thoughts of our mind, the actions of our lives, the words of our mouth, be ever to praise you. Lord, it's all because of you. And I pray today that your words would sink deep, deep within us. That people would not hear me, but thus saith the Lord. That your spirit would quicken those words within us. That we would both be empowered and emblazoned to stand in the power and the authority and the love that is Jesus. May we learn today that we may beware of the things that this world has so that we behave as followers of Christ. This is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, if we're going to behave by bewaring of wary of the things of this world, he said, beloved, we need to be ready. You need to be ready. You know, the older I get, the more I resemble the one that I used to give fits about doing things. Dad, the army really set into him. So dad always would say, you need to get squared away. And on Saturday night, he'd be telling us, you need to get out what you're going to wear on Sunday morning and stuff. And I, oh man, I got plenty of time. I can run a comb through my hair. Back then I had to use a comb. I still got plenty to do it. I just don't like to comb my hair. Um, but we would Dad would make, come in there and say, all right, get this and get this and, and lay it out. Be ready. And I hated doing that. I hated doing that. The last thing I do on Sunday, Saturday nights is as I finish doing the PowerPoint, I go in my study by myself and I got a football game on and I'm studying, doing whatever. And then I go in and I get out what I'm going to wear on Sunday morning. And I set it out. I pick out what tie and what socks. And, you know, I like to be themed sometimes. And I thought, well, it's election week. What? I said, well, we've got uh, soon to be major Captain Mize that will be preaching for us next week in honor of Veterans Day. So I'm going to hold off on the red, white, and blue until next week. So what do I wear today? And so I'll tell you, I am themed today in looking forward to the election Tuesday. I wore this. And I wore my socks. You like my socks? There's a few over here that's always, yeah. They're like, what kind of socks you have on today? Do you know why I wore these pretty pastel polka dot socks and this nice kind of mauvey pink tie? Because I thought of all the unborn babies that had been sacrificed on the altar of politics. And I thought about how we can change that tide. And that tide is already changing. And I pray that the nail in the coffin is driven in Tuesday. And I will not apologize for saying that from this pulpit. Because I know my God is pro-life. I know my God is pro-church. I know my God is pro-Christian. 
And I know one candidate that is. No matter what you think about him, no matter what the president of Southern Seminary says about him, I'm telling you that God raises and lowers kings and he can do whatever he wants. Just think what he's done with you. Be ready. Be ready. And so this morning when I got up, I didn't have to wonder what I was going to put on. I, was, I had it all laid out. I had it laid out. You see, in, in verse 10, now I won't, I'm not going to take up a bunch of time, but I want you to understand, he's not talking about the rapture. He's not even talking about the end of the, of the tribulation. He's literally talking, and it's mentioned more in the minor prophets than the New Testament. It's only mentioned about four times this way. Now, there is the day of Jesus and the day of the church. I believe the rapture. And if you differ on that, whether you believe the rapture takes place before the, the tribulation or after in the middle or there's not an actual rapture, it's just, it doesn't matter. Jesus is coming back. It does matter, but it don't. It's not a, something we ought to fight about. But I believe that it, we are taught from 1 Thessalonians 4, the, the calling out that Jesus is coming to get his church. And then during the, at the end of the tribulation, there'll be a great battle, and then Jesus will come, and this is the second coming. And Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. I was asked Wednesday night, how does all this stuff that we mentioned last Sunday with Bahrain and with the uh, United Arab Emirates and uh, uh, with these, uh, with the Sudan, these Muslim countries that now uh, have entered into naturalization uh, and into some form of diplomacy with the nation of Israel. How does that play into end times? I'm telling you, any time, any time the lamb and the, la and the lion lay down with one another, my friends, it is preparing the way for the coming of the Prince of Peace. Now, doesn't mean there'll be no battles. And the Bible even tells us that when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't panic, the end's not yet. But when you hear peace, peace, then shall come utter destruction. We need to understand this stuff is coming. But what Peter is telling us in the day of the Lord, what is mentioned in the Minor Prophets and only four times here, is when the end of the millennial reign comes. So I don't want you to mistake that I'm trying to say that it's all wound up into one thing. But what I do want you to understand is it's all going to come to a screeching halt. And we need to be ready. Whether you believe that he comes back in the rapture, whether you believe that he comes at the end of the rapture, whether you, you're an amillennialist and don't believe in any of that as being literal, it's all figurative, he's coming back. It's going to end. And we must be ready. He tells us in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now we have, I believe, taken that out of context for movies and for songs and things like that. But the ultimate reason that they do it, I get it. I get it and I'm doing it this morning is we need to understand Jesus is coming back. Everything we've sung about, 
Everything we've preached about, every vacation Bible school, every youth outing, everything we've done is going to matter then. It's like standing beside a casket of a loved one who died in the Lord and knowing and knowing this is not all there is. They're not there. They're in the presence of the Lord that everything they told us, everything they believed in, everything they trusted is real. Jesus is the Lord and Savior. God is on his throne. My friends, we need to be ready for the day. D-Day. Not June 6, 1944. You know what the D in D-Day stands for? Day. It literally meant day of days. And so when you look at history, it will talk about when they're in England and it will be D-Day minus a number of days. And then you see when they're taking Carentan or going through St. Mary Glees or when they're entering into the Ardennes Forest or whatever, it will be D-Day plus something. But D-Day, June 6, 1944, was the day of days. Well, I want you to know that doesn't even come close. It pales in comparison to the day of the Lord. That day, D-Day, when this world will come to a screeching halt. It is the day of the Lord and it's coming. And I want you to hear some things. Number one, there'll be no more prayer. There'll be no more prayer. You remember that old song? We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll pray till Jesus. We need to be, but when Jesus comes, there won't be any need. Because those who know him will be face to face. The Bible says we look through a glass darkly, but then face to face, right? No more prayer. You say, well, I believe my loved ones in heaven to get this. I'm going to correct some really, really bad funeral home doctrine. Y'all know my stance on the whole angel wing thing. I ain't going to beat that dead horse. Your loved one's not watching over you. They can't. Because to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of perfection. Now, one thing we know from the end of Revelation is there'll be no more tears. Now, we know that's speaking of a coming day, but also I believe it is the ramifications of being in the presence of God. We know there's no soul sleep. There is no purgatory. And so to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. Not eating lunch at the varsity. Not on I-16. Not trapped on the McDonough Mile trying to get to Atlanta. Not sitting in the grandstands. No! When we leave this place, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we are in the presence of the one who died for us. And in the presence, there cannot be any sorrow. I don't know about you, but you don't have to look very long to see sorrow. I get every obituary that comes through Evans County. And it comes to me in duplicate. I get it from the chamber. I get it from the funeral home. And so I'm constantly, I check an email and it's another obituary, another obituary, another obituary. My, one of my top three actors, if not the top actor in the world, died this weekend. Bond. The James Bond. All else was just actors. 
I think back when he played in the longest day. Y'all know me. I'm a World War II history nerd. And one of the greatest World War movies of all time was The Longest Day. I mean, it had the greatest actors of all time. And Sean Connery was in there playing, as he would, a Scottish soldier. At 90 years old, that's a long life, isn't it? He's still dead. And I don't know his relationship with the Lord. Never met the man. But I can tell you something. James Bond beat death a lot of times on the screen. He says, you mean to make me talk? He said, no, Mr. Bond, I mean to make you die. Well, he's dead now. And he's either in the presence of the Lord or he's not. At 1.30 this morning, the cousin that I was closest to growing up, the closest in age to me, that would take me to school and take me home, that we would hang out together, she went to be with the Lord at the age of 60. Two months ago, went to the doctor thinking, oh, I must have COVID. I'm going to tell y'all something. Everybody watching, there's things a lot worse than COVID. And that thing is not going to hold us hostage. She went to the doctor and says, oh, I've got a cough and all this. And they sent her to the hospital from the urgent care. She was in the hospital for three days by herself. Wouldn't let her husband, which was retired sheriff, and her daughter or her son, which is also a police officer, wouldn't let him stay three days in the hospital by herself. She calls and says, come get me. They've diagnosed me with cancer. And so she had begun to take some treatments, trying, and got very ill the first of the week. Went to the hospital. Two days later, they called her daughter. and says, hey, can you come up here and try to get your mother to respond? She's not, she's unresponsive. We, we pinched her. We've prodded her. We've talked to her. We've done everything we can. See if you can get her to respond. And there was no response. My mother sent me a message last night at 11.30 and said, pray, she's not long for this world. And at 1.30 this morning, she met God. And I'd like to tell you, man, what an example. The depth of love she had for her Savior and the measure she went to to serve God. I couldn't tell you the last time she was ever in the church. I've never known her to be faithful. I knew her to be the sweetest thing. She loved her family. And when you'd get around, and she was kind of a recluse in, in many ways, beautiful the purest blonde hair. I mean, she still had Shirley Temple blonde hair in the last picture I saw of her. But I don't know if she ever kept a nursery. I know she never taught a Sunday school class. Don't know that she ever helped in Bible school. I don't know, but I, I can only pray that there was a day that she bent her knee bowed her head and asked Jesus to come into her life. Her dad is one that I've mentioned to you that we had such a burden for and he called me late one night 30 something years ago to tell me he had trusted Jesus as his Savior. But it was 
after his kids were already married and gone, listen, there'll be no more prayer. There'll be no more repentance. There'll be no more religions. There'll be no temples. There'll be no synagogues. There will be no local assemblies. There'll be no more religions. No more vacations. And some folks really realize that because they're trying to use every single one they can. There'll be no last chances. I believe in having a good time. We've had a good time. We've been on golf junkets and we've been in deer, deer stands and following bird dogs and rabbit dogs and been on the lake and been at the beach. I like having a good time. But I'm going to tell you, when we put having a good time ahead of being what God has called us to be, we've got our priorities out of order. And there'll be no more chances. What about that person you've been meaning to tell about Jesus? So I know I'm saved, yeah, but what about the ones you need to tell? There'll be no last chances. When we say, hey, I'll go to church if I don't have anything else to do. And you wonder why those 18, 19, 20-year-olds don't come back. Because mom and dad modeled that church was not important. Vacation was. Recreation was. The things of the world, if there's anything more important. I'm going to tell you something today. There's not a whole lot of people being saved at Falcons games, Braves games, or any other kind of games. Where people are saved is when God's people come together and the preaching of the gospel meets the lostness and the spirit convicts. Now, can they be saved there? Yeah, absolutely. But my friends, I want you to understand there'll be no excuses. But I can remember when my daddy said, I told you to behave. You see, it's always better if you listen to that one word, not the post-reference. I told you it's too late then. And I'd start with every excuse I could find in the book. Why it was always my brother's fault. Why it was my cousin's fault. Why I didn't remember, I didn't hear it right or something. But you know what? There was no excuses. Daddy was long-suffering. But I want you to understand, our God, you say, I just believe. And do you know when Christians are polled, most of them will tell you they really believe ultimately because God is love, everybody's going to heaven. I'm here to tell you, Jesus said, that ain't true. For the Son of God, I want to tell you, if you think you're going to go to heaven because you're a member of Eastside, because you got baptized, because you got saved and walked an aisle, five different Bible schools and signed a card and dunked by five different preachers because you did something really good, but the truth is you never were saved. You've never repented of your sin. I want to ask you, you think you're going to heaven. I want to ask you one question between you and God. You answer it. Don't answer me. Answer God. If you can get to heaven because you're a good, hardworking daddy and because you've been a faithful member of the community and a member of the church, then why did Jesus have to die? Because the Bible's very clear, for God so loved the world, and there's not a period, that he gave us his only begotten son. 
Jesus died on the cross for you and me. And there'll be no excuses. We need to be ready. If we're going to behave by being ready, then we ought to be right. Look at verse 11. Man, this is strong right here. What manner of persons ought you to be? You ever had somebody say, boy, you know how to act. You ought to know better. You ever heard that? Honey, I love you, but you ought to know better. I've taught, I mean, you heard the old saying, bomb books, send them to school, but you can't learn them nothing. The truth is, you have to decide. Joshua said it. The prophet said it. The apostle said it. And Jesus said it. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you serving that little man in your heart that gives you what you want? You've fallen out of being what God wants you to be. You know you're living in open rebellion. You know you're running from God. He said behave and be right. What manner? Means what kind of person should I be? Means It literally means in the original language to be different. The Bible says that we are to be a peculiar people. I've been called that, amongst other things. Peculiar Christians ought to be different. You know what the greatest compliment in the world is? The absolute greatest compliment is someone that doesn't know you. Say, you're a Christian, aren't you? You're a Christian, aren't you? I see a lot of smiles around here because... That's the greatest thing you can be accused of because either by a lost person, your behavior, your manner, how you ought to be, you're being it, and they see it, they recognize it, and say, oh, you're, a, you're one of them Christians. Or it's a Christian and your spirit bears witness with them, or you've said it to someone else. You say, hey, you're a believer, aren't you? You see, when we're right, when our manner of, of lifestyle, who we are, we is right. We will be different. Listen, we'll be different in our walk. That is our conversation. It's weird because here it, it doesn't mean conversation as in talking like we think of it. It literally means like in the New King James, holy conduct, how we behave. That means with the Lord. Is our walk with the Lord? Are we walking and talking, trusting, obeying? Are we doing that which is pleasing to the Lord? We need to be right with the Lord. How can two walk together unless they agree? In your walk before man, people will see it. People will know it. We just talked about that. But then not only in our behavior, but in our devotion. That's in our talk. It ought to be godly talk. Listen, we can talk about the Braves. We can talk about the Bulldogs. We can, I don't want to talk about Georgia Tech too much, but we can talk about all that. We can, we can talk about music. We can talk about the arts. We can talk about a myriad of things. Don't look at what you can't talk about. Look at what you can but it should be focused on a godliness. And listen to me, everything ought to lead back 
to Jesus. Fans of people like Georgia Tech ought to be the most godly people in the world because they, under, they understand the depth and depravity. Listen, in your talk with God, when's the last time you just sat down and talked with God? And do you know the holy conversation? And, and men, I want to remind you and women, a conversation doesn't mean she talks and you listen. A conversation means you both talk and you both listen. That's what a conversation looks like. It is two parties. And when's the last time you said, God, it's good to talk with you today. What you got for me today? And just be quiet. God, what have you got for me? You know when we want to hear from God? When it is life-shattering, life-changing, and we want to know from God, we want to know now. It's like standing in the line at Walmart when the kid kisses. Can I have it? Can I have it? Please, please, can I have it? Can I have it? That's us before God. Why do we wait till it's panic time? You know, it's a lot easier if you'll just meet with him regularly and know his will. We don't pray that to change God's will. We pray that God change ours. Be right in your talk with God and with, with others. I pray it doesn't go a certain way, but if some things go a certain way, and I will remind you what I've said a few weeks ago, when they say that we choose science over fiction, they're saying we don't believe in God. And if they're saying we don't believe in God, then they're not going to put any precedent or any priority for those who do. And that means the persecution of the church could be wide open. The killing of unborn children, the, the protection of assembling one promise of one of the candidates is that if he wins Tuesday, it will be an immediate lockdown. You think it's bad in California, it'll be everywhere come January. Get your head out of the sand. I'm not making this up. You say, I don't watch the news. You better. Your future and the future of your children and grandchildren depend on what happens to you. Not really. Let me back up. It does, but God's not going to lose control. Now, I don't want to use that as an excuse not to do what God's told us to do. You see what I'm saying? We need to vote. We need to be passionate about truth, and we need to stop being scared. And listen, don't be a troll. Tell people face to face because you can't hear love you can't hear inflection through a tweet. You can't hear that on Facebook. But when you look someone in the eyes and tell them Jesus died for them, they'll get it. We need to be right in our talk with others. But then, listen, we must be looking. Three times he uses it in three verses. He tells us back again, in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward. So what are we to do? If we're to behave, we ought to be looking. 
What does Luke mean? To await eagerly. We're, we're sitting there expectantly. We're looking. We're waiting. I kind of heard tale of a, a special surprise a couple of days ago. I kind of walked in on a conversation or FaceTime and uh, not being the, the, the sharpest tool in the tool shed, I did kind of pick, pick up on things, but Ethan probably gave me more credit than I deserve. He said, well, you may have picked it up, but Walter's stateside. And he's been here for almost two weeks, but he's had to be quarantined because of coming from overseas. But I'm going to get him this weekend. I might as well tell you because I'm going to have to tell you why I'm not going hunting. I'm going to have to tell you why I'm doing this. So he tells me all that. And I told Becky Friday, I said, I believe Ethan's as excited about Walter coming home as Walter is to be home. And so they come by the house first. I got to see him first. But they prepared to go take Walter home. I said, how'd it go? I couldn't wait to hear because I, I don't know about you. You want to see your preacher cry? Show me a video of a soldier coming home. I'll cry to drop of the hat. I mean, I've done pretty well with the animal videos now. I've, I've kind of got past that. But when a soldier comes home, man, it just rocks my world. And so I was, lit, I was thinking, what's going on at this minute? What's going on right now? Because I was timing it for them to get over there. And when he come back, he told me. He said, Walter, uh, 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 Trey was out in the yard. And Walter panicked, laid in the seat all the way back so he couldn't see him. And then walks in and just telling the whole story. They wasn't expecting it. And so it was a, a big surprise. I'm going to tell you, the coming of the Lord is going to be a big surprise. Because a lot of people ain't looking. It's not going to be a fun surprise for many. So we need to be looking, expectantly looking for His appearing. It means to be excited. Look, first of all, expectantly looking for His coming. And when I say expectantly, that means judgment's coming. He tells us right here. Now, I want you to understand something. This is the real global warming. There is literally, when he tells us, look, look with me again in this context. He said, it will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements. Any of you remember studying the elements? And all the gases and all that. Listen, do you, do you, and I'm not even going to begin because I will surely mess it up. But when they start talking about black holes and supernovas and all of this stuff in space, you remember who made that, right? And you've heard about how hot the sun burns and all that. Do you know the A-bomb was dropped in 1945? The first one went off in July uh, in a place uh, outside of Alamogordo, and it turned all the sand to glass. It was so hot. The, the steel rails that pulled it up, you've seen the pictures where they pulled it up and dropped it right there, and it went off. That The steel that rails 10 inches uh, thick weighed 90 pounds a foot, each one. No evidence 
of them at all once the bomb went off. It left a crater 5,000, that's a mile, 5,000 feet wide and almost 200 foot deep in the solid, hard, sun-dried earth. And the A-bomb was like a firecracker because then came the hydrogen bomb. And now we have progressed even further than that to where a, a modern bomb, nuclear bomb, will burn two and a half times hotter than the surface of the sun to completely obliterate. But it still does not compare to those stars out past the sun that when they burn up and all that helium leaks out and uh, uh, emits that all of the heavens, the elements, the oxygen and the helium and the nitrogen and all of that stuff in a moment when God speaks, It won't be warmed. It will be cooked. There's judgment coming, church. That's the whole point. Expect it. But notice how we ought to be excitedly looking for newness because he tells us this. Listen, very clearly in verse 14, looking forward to these things, looking with anticipation, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. You see, it's a day of newness, of completion. According to his promise, there'll be new heavens and a new earth. There'll be no damaged ozone layer. There will not be any kind of pollution in the air. It will all be new. So what should we do? We ought to be busy. Because he said in the first part of verse 12, he said, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That puts responsibility on us that we ought to be hastening the day, helping the day get here quicker. How do we do that? Number one, do the work of an evangelist. When's the last time you told anybody about Jesus? I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me. Even pastors can neglect doing what God wants. Matter of fact, we're very guilty of neglecting to do what God has called us to do. We ought to be telling the world. And see, listen, we're like, we're ready for it to be over, go eat lunch, do what we've got to do. And people are dying and going to hell. We ought to be more worried about our neighbor than we are even the election Tuesday. You know how we stop abortion? Yeah, change the laws. But do you know if we would win young people to Christ, many of them would never become pregnant and even those who do would respect life because Jesus had given them life. Y'all with me? You want to solve the opiate crisis? You want to solve the drug and alcohol crisis? Lead people to Jesus. You know what we need? We need an old-fashioned, carpet-burning, knee-calloused revival in our churches and in the land. It will not begin at the White House. 
It will not begin at the Capitol. It will not begin at the courthouse. It will, become, it will begin in your house and mine. And it will move to the church house. And then it will go to the other houses in the land. We need to get right with God. We need to be busy. Disciple other believers. Matthew 28 tells us that, right? Tells us to go teaching and preaching. We're to disciple and grow others. We'll teach them how to swing a bat, how to swing a club. We'll teach them how to catch a ball, how to do their math homework. We'll teach them about history or how to conjugate a verb. But are we teaching them? Thus saith the Lord. Hebrews 10, 25. The famous go to church text said, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but listen, exhorting, challenging one another, lifting one another, extolling one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Would you agree we're closer than ever before? Then why are we not calling and encouraging other people to come and worship? And you know what? If we're going to be busy serving as an evangelist, discipling, then we must not stop. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, and you can read it about the whole armor of God and putting it on and withstanding the fiery darts of Satan. But the last part, I think in verse 13, he said, and having done all to stand. Listen, we must not stop. And if we don't, this leads to being unmovable. He said in verse 17, you, if you wondered if this is for you, listen to this, you. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this, you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, you used to be a soul winner. You used to work with the youth. You used to teach Sunday school. But it's been forever since you've even bowed your knee in a quiet moment of seeking God's face. It's time to be the mother God's called you to be. It's time to be the church member, to be the deacon, to be the father, to be the pastor God's called you to be. We must be unmovable, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And how do we stay unmovable? It's based on His past faithfulness. Has God ever done anything for you? We're Baptists. It's okay say amen or yeah. God's done something for you? Has God saved you? Is that not kind of miraculous? Do you think you deserve saving? I'll tell you, everybody in this room and everybody born on the earth deserves hell. So God did something for you. Anybody ever been through open heart surgery? Anybody ever had a heart attack? Anybody... Ever had cancer? Anybody ever had problem with diabetes? 
Anybody ever had a problem with your liver or pancreas or with your lungs? Anybody ever had any problems with your head or anything else? And you're here. Has God been faithful? Look over at Aiden. He said, oh yeah. Yeah, he's been faithful. Look at Mike and I... No, he and I have talked about things. I look at Tara. Tara came to me two years ago after they'd split me from between my eyes to the tip of my nose, and I didn't think a whole lot about it. She said, you know, you're a survivor. I said, well, yeah, thanks. That's the song. No, she said, you're a cancer survivor. You've had it. They've gotten rid of it. I didn't think much of it for a little while until, thanks, Tara. Then I'm like, oh, man. And then somebody even more, they said, you know, once you get that, it just keeps coming back. I said, thank you, buddy. I said, you're like a bad virus. Boy, you just, you're full of encouragement. So about a month ago, I just made me a, an appointment. And I went in there. They said, what are you here for? I said, I had squamous cell cancer on my nose and as you can tell, it used to not look like this. I said, and I used to be out in the sun. I was a framer in construction, worked without a shirt, and, you know, did all that stuff, went to the beach, went to the lake, and I said, now I'm paying the price. I said, I just want to be checked because I hear, it's okay. Strip down, put this gown on. I did, and he, he looked through my scalp literally all the way to the bottom of my feet. And when I left, he said, you're good. Don't see anything. And I felt good about that. You know, I say all that to say this. Has God been faithful to you or not? Women. How many women here have had a baby? Raise your hand. This is, you always brag about how much you went through. Raise your hand real big. Well, you ought to. It's pretty heroic. If you've ever been in there and saw it, I've been on the front row. Told Ethan, I was the first one to put hands on you, son. I can be the last. Now I wonder about that. Women, was it not miraculous? When both of my children were born, our daughter looked over. She's holding Emily like this. You can see it in the picture, and I'm leaning in. She did this, and as soon as that picture's over, she looked over at me holding Emily. And she says, like this, on display, she said, how can anybody say there's not a God? I was talking to someone the other day about the churches, the little primitive Baptist and Methodist church in Cades Cove up in Townsend, Tennessee, outside of Pigeon Forge. Any of you ever rode through there? Any of you ever stopped at the churches, the old Methodist that's right on the paved road? Any of you ever walked out to the cemetery? Next time you go, go walk through the cemetery. You'll see headstones full from the Spanish flu epidemic. But the thing that will strike you is through the ages back when that church was first built and that cemetery first took place in the early 20th century, late 19th century, how many mothers died in childbirth and how many babies never survived past three or four months? 
Just think what they do now for one that is breech. Or now we just stick them in NICU, you know, and they're able to go on oxygen and go on. They didn't have all that 100 years ago. Think in the last 100 years, you know, they were just learning what ether could help with in the Civil War. We didn't have penicillin. We didn't have any of that stuff 100-something years ago. God is faithful, is he not? It's built on his unchanging word. I want you to know, this is cool, man. This is so cool. My dad's sister, you remember I asked prayer a month or so ago, my dad's sister passed away. Well, this week there was a box from her oldest son, my cousin Mark. I talked to him a week ago. First time I'd talked to him in probably 15, 18 years. I come home after going to the meeting in Cleveland this week and Becky said, did you open that box from your cousin? I said, no. She said, why would you not open it? You're always about surprised. I said, well, I just hadn't had time. And I figured it's something that I need time. And so when I found time, I took it in, took a knife because it was well taped. It was pretty heavy and I opened it. And immediately when I opened it, I saw an old ratty, ragged hymn book. It wasn't even a cover on it. It done wore apart, fell apart. And then I noticed it had my grandmother's name on it in her handwriting. And I'm going to tell you all something. I have laughed till I hurt. Because apparently you got it like you got textbooks back then. You got a Bible, you got a hymn book, and you toted that everywhere. Well, she wasn't married yet. Now you'll talk about infatuated. My grandmother must have been infatuated with my granddaddy. Because in all the hymns, now like, you know the old song, Oh, How I Love Jesus? In all those places, my grandmother had marked out the name Jesus and wrote Fred. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Oh, how I love Fred, which was my granddaddy's. I laughed, I laughed, I laughed. It was the greatest moment. And I started looking through old pictures and I saw a picture of my grandmother when she was a little girl riding on a mule. And I saw my great aunt with a cane pole and overhauls sitting down at the creek fishing, just grinning, having a big time. I saw my granddaddy and Ethan said he looked like a lawyer or doctor or something. Granddaddy, once God called him to preach, he didn't wear overalls. He, he, he was that kind of preacher. He thought you're supposed to wear a pair of Sansabelle slacks, pull them up about here. And even when it was hot, you had a button-down, you know, collared shirt, short sleeve or whatever. He couldn't stand. I'd wear T-shirts and shorts. I was about one step from purgatory. But I looked at all that, and then I noticed there was a plastic bag with this little black book. Now, I've got two little black books like that. One is a, a little black book that was my grandfather's that was for funeral services. And another one is by Hobbes. And it was the book in the day for pastors that had how to do with weddings, how to do funerals. It was called the Pastor's Manual. And it looked like one of them. I said, well, that's pretty cool. But, you know, it's in this bag. So I opened it and I reached in and I pulled it out. And I opened it. It wasn't my granddaddy's. It wasn't my grandmother's. But I knew right away Four big numbers, 1919. That's over 100 years ago, if you don't count very well like me. 
But in it, it had L.L. Maddox. I said, that's my great-granddaddy's Bible. It was the New Testament. And you know, as I looked at it, I thought, this Bible, this is, this is antiquity. I mean, it's over 100 years old. This was my, I never met my great-grandfather. He was long gone. He was the one that lost his arm in a cotton gin. Here's this old Bible, and it was worn. But you know what? Second Peter read the same to him as it does to you and me today. The exact, it's that this past week was Reformation Day. It, Romans reads exactly the same today as it did to Martin Luther in 1517. It's the exact same thing. Because the Holy Spirit has preserved it and it is living and it is God. We are built on His unchanging Word. And then we must be unmovable because we're blessed in His unfailing grace. I don't know about you, but I don't deserve it. See, I've told my kids to behave and then I didn't. I told my youth to behave and then I didn't. I preached messages behave and then I didn't. But God is faithful. Therefore, we must be growing. How? He said in verse 18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him, to Him, church, to Him, be glory both now and forever. Amen. As Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, glory in the church, we ought to be about the Father's business. Listen, as we close this book, close this study, we must be growing, number one, in the grace of Jesus. What is grace? Unmerited favor. What does it look like? Galatians 5 tells us that it is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. It is Jesus. We must be growing in the grace of Jesus. If you're not sweeter and kinder and more loving, if you're meaner just because you're older, you become more ornery, hard to get along with. You're jacked up. And the truth is, you got all your eyes on you and what you deserve. I'm going to tell you something. You ought to not get older and meaner. You ought to get older and sweeter. My favorite thing at Christmas is my mama's orange cake. You hear that, mama? She knows it already. But so she'll make it. And it's just a sheet cake, white sheet cake. But she takes fresh oranges, cuts them all up, puts them all over it. Well, it's good. But it's even better about two days later because all that juice begins to soak in and it gets real syrupy on the bottom. You take the cake and just, just, just swap it in the corners of the pan, you know. And man, it gets better. Y'all know what I'm saying? It gets better. You ought to be getting better, not meaner. Some people just going to mean away. They just, you know what I said, they just they smell old. They don't even know what mothballs are. They just smell like that. 
He just, when they open their mouth, just mean and moody and just, I'm like, you never know how to deal with them. God says we ought to be gentle and kind. We ought to be loving and long-suffering. Am I right? Y'all know I'm right. You're laughing because you know I'm right. You know somebody I'm describing. God, help us not to be that. May we be full of love and joy and peace. But then the Christian disciplines, that's, that's growing in grace. Worship. Prayer. Is your prayer life more? The, the disciples, they had not attained. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Fellowship. We ought to be fellowshipping with one another. Fasting. It's not if you fast. He said when you fast. Giving. And I'm preaching to the choir. You've been faithful, but some of you may not be. And you need to be giving and serving. Confession. Being honest before God. Thankful. And studying God's Word. But as they come to the instruments, listen, not only should we be growing in the grace of Jesus, we ought to be growing in the knowledge of Him. You know what? We are to know Jesus and make Him known. How are you going to describe one that you know nothing about? You know, I like to mess with cars. Dean says, no, you just like to drive them. You want me to work on them. A lot of truth to that. But I do know how, to, how Chevrolet basically works. I can kind of know about the Fords. I know Fords are backwards. They put the distributor on the front. It's supposed to go on the back. I can still tell you that the fire and order on an old 350 or 327 engine is 1865 one eight seven two six five four three. I can tell you the firing order of that motor. I can tell you what you get with spark plugs. I can tell you how some of that stuff's supposed to work. Because that's what I always had, it's what I always took pride in, is knowing some of that stuff. But I couldn't tell you a second about a Plymouth or a Dodge. I don't know anything. I just know that their alternators must have been made in China because they go, ying, 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 ying. I don't know. I can't tell you about that. But what I can tell you is, I can tell you about a Chevrolet. I can tell you about how to frame or how to cut an angle because that's what I did for a living. I can't tell you how to run a home run from out here on a, uh, some kind of switch panel to the main panel. I don't know. I'm not an electrician. I can't tell you about that. And there's a lot of people that can't tell anything and anyone about Jesus because they don't know anything about him. We need to be growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Listen this morning. Are you behaving as a Christian? Are you ready? Are you right? Are, are you right in your walk, in your talk? Are you looking? Are you looking for his immediate appearance? Are you being busy for the Lord or just being busy, period? You see, the whole quarantine thing, the whole social distance has rattled us more because we've had to be still than it is about missing church for many people. We must be unmovable, always abounding. And we must be growing, listen, this morning as we stand. I challenge you this morning, know Jesus. 
Be warned. Beware. Hey, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a judgment one day. And everything you've done, everything you've said, will stand out between you and God. And He's going to judge you for it. Are you right? Are you where God wants you to be? Serving, living. Are you saved to know Jesus as your Savior? Listen right now. Without moving around, I know it's been a little long, but this is a holy moment. I want you to be prayerful about what God wants you to do. And I'm going to tell you, the sooner the altars fill up for His glory, not because I provoked you here, but because the Spirit leads you here, the sooner we submit to God's calling on our lives, the quicker we're going to see God move. And we're going to hasten His coming. Will you hasten your coming to Him this morning as we sing? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning.